know from the prophecies in the scripture that our Lord Jesus will return to this earth, which is his rightful inheritance. And he will manifest his kingdom in glory over the entire earth. That will inaugurate the millennial kingdom of a thousand years. Human government will have been abolished. The devil himself will be bound and in the abyss. The powers of the coming age mentioned in Hebrews will be increasingly manifested. There will be no war, no weapons of war. It will be the age of righteousness. Yet it will still be in the old creation after that thousand years there will be the new heaven and the new earth. But before the Lord comes as the heir, before he comes as the stone to smash human government, before he comes as the warrior and as the king, he's coming in a different way as the bridegroom. Dealing with serious problems like the chaos and rebellion on the earth and the warfare necessary with the enemy, these are necessary, but they're secondary. What is primary is God's eternal purpose to have a wonderful, delightful, married life with a bride produced in time and with a marriage that will last forever and ever. Amen. This is the desire of God's heart. This is the yearning in the heart of the Lord Jesus tonight. We pointed out, at least to some extent this morning, that although the initial goal of the Lord's recovery is the building up of the body of Christ in reality, the actual goal, the final goal, is the preparation of the bride. This bride is composed of a large number of believers, eventually millions. So much needs to take place. We need to proclaim the gospel so unbelievers will be saved, regenerated. We need to establish local churches in all their practicality and live a church life all of our days. We need to teach the truth and minister life, shepherd the souls of the saints. All these are indispensable aspects of our service. 
We do not need less of these. We need more. But if we have the first love, the bridal love, developing according to the pattern in Song of Songs, we will do the first works, works that are motivated by this love which is strong as death. I am burdened to testify again and again. This I know. Love is as strong as death. So this love motivates us to carry out all these necessary works. But if we are governed by the vision of the goal of the Lord's recovery, to have the bride, and if we preserve and develop our first love, nothing we do will distract us. And no thing and no one and no matter will possess us. Our heart will be single. It will be absolute. I give a theoretical illustration. Suppose a brother, a very faithful brother, eager to be married, one with the Lord in the entire process. He has a divinely human courtship with his sister. She also loves him. And now he proposes, there's the engagement and the preparation. It's just about the time of the wedding. And then this brother realizes something about her. And he can't deny what he realizes. He does love him. Second. Still in her heart, is the love for someone else. How could he go through with the wedding? How could he unreservedly present himself to her? How could she, with abandon, offer himself to him? And they both know there's something in her being that's ahead of the love for her husband. Various verses <coughs> indicate <coughs> that the Lord searches our spirits. He knows our hearts. He spoke to one of the churches, but as the Spirit spoke to all, saying, All the churches will know that I search the inward parts and the heart. So this bride must be a corporate person who is not merely redeemed and saved, but basically unchanged in the soul. She needs to have a love develop in her, a because love. From 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us then that love never fails. Rather, it intensifies. It's the flame of Jehovah burning in our being. 
Love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, nor do floods drown it. Now I have the assurance, as never before in my life, <clears throat> that the waters of death, they may come as the tide. You will never quench the burning fire of love in my being. It's as strong as death. The floods cannot drown it. Then this developing love enables the various aspects of the bride's preparation to take place. This love is the motive for everything. So, he opens her whole being to the Lord to receive his fine, continuous dispensing that she may grow to maturity, be transformed by the divine life, and be filled with the divine life to overflowing that she blesses and becomes a blessing wherever she is. And she matures for the bridegroom. I illustrated, again, imaginatively, that you've never been at a wedding meeting where a mature man, at whatever age, marries a little girl. It would be unseemly, it would be illegal, it's impossible. Now, using our imagination a little more, a man, a male, would never marry a different species. Admittedly, he may find the female somewhat mysterious at times, and she may find the male rather enigmatic at times, but there's a realization we have the same life and nature. How can the redeeming God, the God-man Jesus, marry someone who is not the same as he is in life, nature, constitution, appearance, and expression? That's impossible. Just as Adam could not find a counterpart in a giraffe or an orangutan, or in any other creature that was presented to him, the Lord cannot find a counterpart in the natural created human race. He must produce what we call God-mankind. A species that's the same as he is. He is God who became man, is divinely human, and we are humans who in God's salvation, become God in life and nature, but not in the Godhead, to be humanly divine. So now we match. Recently, a co-worker heard about the engagement of another co-worker to a sister from another part of the world that he happened to know. And one of his main comments was, what a match. What an excellent match. Well, the Lord must have this match. A corporate person 
matured to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. <coughs> so that is one of the characteristics for maturity. We don't have to have rapture-ready maturity tonight. But it's precious if we all have the sense that we are growing. We are maturing. That means we're on course. And we know that God is for us. He's not playing with us. He's not out to get us in a crafty sense. He's not that kind of being. So we have not only the hope but the faith. We will grow to maturity. It's normal. Because this bride is a corporate person composed of a vast number of glorified believers, she is a building. When John was told by the angel, come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife, what he saw was a city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the city is not a literal metropolis. The city is the kingdom of God, signified by city, that is a corporate person who is the bride, the wife of the, of the Lamb. That's the last vision in the Bible. And John is communicating this to churches so that churches would know. The Lord said in Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my messenger to testify these things for the churches. He's saying, I want my churches to know what God's goal is. What will be the consummation? It will be a marriage. First, a wedding attended by the overcomer. Then the eternal marriage for the entire bride. For that, the bride needs what we call building, becoming corporate in her being, living in the reality of the body of Christ, knowing that just as she cannot live without God, she cannot live without the supply of the body. I live and serve because the body prays, especially sisters pray. I don't do what I do because I'm a hero. There are no heroes in the body of Christ. The supply comes from the body in order to enable us to minister to the body. Now tonight, we need to consider two other characteristics of the bride which point to two other aspects of her preparation. And the title says, The Righteousness of the Bride and the Beauty of the Bride. Now, I refer again and turn again to Revelation 19 because I'd like us to be impressed directly from the verse. What is emphasized concerning her? 19.7 Let us rejoice and exult let us give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. 
which means she has been actively preparing by responding to the Lord's operation in her to grow to maturity, to be built up. But notice what is emphasized in verse 8. And it was given to her that she should be clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. This matter of her wedding garment, her wedding dress, how she is clothed, is given a central emphasis here. She should be clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. This is her bridal garment. Even if the bride matures in life, even if she becomes a corporate person through building, if she does not have the wedding garment, she's disqualified. And our Lord, in utter faithfulness, spoke about this from another angle in Matthew 22. And I read part of that parable of the wedding feast that occupies verses 1 through 14. I just read verse 2 and then I'll move to verse 11. The kingdom of the heavens has become like a king who prepared a wedding feast for his son. The king is God the Father. The son is the God-man Jesus. The whole kingdom of the heavens now becomes, it wasn't this at first, it has become like a king preparing a wedding feast for his son. So while the bride is being prepared, God the Father, the king, is preparing a wedding feast. You just imagine what kind of dinner will God the Father prepare for the marriage of his son, his beloved son in whom he delights. And what joy will be in the father's heart to know that at last his beloved son has his counterpart, a female reproduction of himself who is the same as he is in life nature and constitution, appearance and expression. The difference is not in the Godhead. So she will worship the redeeming God. She will never have the Godhead. She will never be worshipped. Actually, the wedding that will take place will be an utter reversal of what is in our culture. Uh, I don't have any idea what kind of magazines are being published. I know there's one called Bride Magazine. I don't think there's one called Bridegroom. <laughs> I never heard of a young man who subscribes to Bridegroom Magazine and every month was just in awe of the tuxes and the things that the bridegroom wears. No, <clears throat> because under the influence of really 
pagan goddess worship. The bridegroom is standing there, kind of secondary, and all attention is on the bride. No one stands up for the bridegroom. No one plays, here comes the bridegroom. Here comes the bride. Everyone stands up, looks at her, she's the center. And then the man, you know, he has to be there if there's to be a wedding. <laughs> but no one is waiting for, when will the bridegroom come? Where has there been a wedding meeting where the bride is there? And everyone's waiting for the bridegroom to come. And when the bridegroom comes, everyone cheers and celebrates and sheds tears of joy. No such thing, because the thing is upside down. So I'm waiting for the one and only, the first and last normal wedding in the universe, the wedding of the Lord Jesus and His bride. And she will be mature. We've somewhat established that. She will be a corporate person. But now we need to pay very careful attention because as I will try to explain to you in some respects, this will be the costliest matter in our experience. Acquiring the fine linen, bright and clean, the wedding garment. And the sooner we can begin this process under the divine light, by the divine life, encouraging one another, the better it will be for us. Then many were invited to the wedding. Many came. But in verse 11, we read this. When the king came in to look at those reclining at table, he saw there a man who was not clothed with a wedding garment. I don't know how he got in, but he didn't have a wedding garment. And they said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind his feet and hands and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Countless so-called Bible scholars and theologians have misinterpreted and erroneously taught this portion of the word. They think this is all about salvation. And that the person who came in without a wedding garment was unsaved. And so he perishes forever. Well, he's not put into the lake of fire. He's put into the outer darkness that is in the periphery. And there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, largely because of regret. A desperate feeling. I just wasted, wasted my time, and I can't be here. Do you see how crucial the wedding garment is. And I know some of the points are covered on the outline, but I'd rather read them for support and confirmation. I'd rather now 
just speak according to what is burning in my heart. Every believer needs two kinds of garments. Not just one. In Luke 15, when the wayward son came home because he was hungry, the first thing the father did was not to feed him, but to clothe him with the best robe. That robe signifies Christ as our righteousness for our justification before God the Father. This is what it means to be justified by faith. When we believe that Christ died for our sins, righteously fulfilling the requirement, and that the righteous God accepted his death on our behalf and raised him from the dead as proof, then this righteous God declares us righteous according to the standard of his righteousness. And this is symbolized by the white robe. We are all clothed tonight. We can appear before God because he sees us in Christ as our righteousness. But the wedding garment is not for us to appear before God. It's for us to be in the presence of the overcoming Christ. Objective righteousness, that is being declared righteous through our faith, in the Lord in His death and resurrection. That is objective. It doesn't change our being. It changes our standing. And it opens the way for our spirit to be regenerated. Romans 8.10 says, Our spirit is life because of righteousness. But at that stage, all the rest of our being is unchanged. It's the same as that of an unbeliever. The souls are the same as the ungodly. It is the spirit that has changed. Okay, let me try to make this transparently clear. The soul, as an organ, has two main functions. It is the organ of enjoyment. But tonight I emphasize that it's the organ of expression. Expression. The Christ, who is in our spirit, wants to be expressed through our soul. When there is a full expression of Christ, through our soul, that expression becomes the fine linen, bright and clean. That expression is our wedding garment. If we come before God,
clothed with Christ as our objective righteousness, we have peace. We have boldness toward God because he sees us clothed. But if we presume to enter into the presence of the bridegroom without the expression of Christ through our soul, that is, without the second garment, which is this expression, we are considered unclothed. We're unclothed. What the Lord sees is the self, the expression of the self, not the expression of himself. That is intolerable. The bride is the reproduction and counterpart of the bridegroom. Her wedding garment is actually the expression of the Christ who is the life-giving spirit in her spirit. Then how is this garment produced? It is produced by a process requiring a lot of things over time with certain crises in our life. Okay. Our spirit is regenerated. Our soul is natural. So the soul expresses the self. How then can the soul <clears throat> become the organ to express the indwelling Christ in our spirit. Okay. Two kinds of things, especially, must happen to our soul. One of these is the life-giving spirit needs to be given the freedom to spread into our soul. To renew our mind. To sanctify our whole being. And the more Christ as his spirit spreads in our soul, the more we are transformed from glory to glory. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And are transformed into the same image. So glory is God expressed. The image is Christ as the expression of the invisible God. So this transformation is enabling our soul to express the Christ of glory in our spirit. That would be a rather simple matter if our soul were not previously occupied. And there's something very specific that is occupying ourself and actually even is ourself in its strongest expression. And that is our self-righteousness. Our sense of what is right, our feeling about being right, our concept of what is right. And the self is strongest 
when it's convinced that it's right. So we know from a recent history, men would do terrifying things, costing thousands of lives, convinced this is for God, this is a righteous thing they can do. People fight because they're convinced they are right. Have you ever engaged a person, you're having a disagreement, and he says, I'm wrong. You want to fight about it? <laughs> no one fights to prove that they're wrong. So all of us, we have a righteous self. We have a soul that has been trained and built up to live according to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have our own righteousness. When we come to the Lord's Table meeting tomorrow, we should have and probably will have the sense we can only be here with Christ as our righteousness. We come under the cleansing of his precious blood. We would never approach God and tell him, I can come to you because I'm righteous. I'm right. We are all so clear about this. It's only by faith in Christ and our being justified by God and approved by him and clothed with Christ as our objective righteousness that we can come. But in our actual living, in our relationships, in our thinking, there's something else going on. There is the natural life, the soul life, and the self with its own righteousness. And I don't know how to put it. I think I should just be faithfully direct. That righteousness has to be smashed to pieces and eliminated. Because it is the greatest obstacle in our soul. So it is the self-expressed in its own righteousness. Now our dear brother Paul is the pattern of going through this process. And he gives us some very good direction in Philippians chapter 3. He said, and be found in him. He said, I want to be found by anyone who meets me in Christ. I want to be found living in the organic union with Christ by living in my mingled spirit. So wherever you see me, if I'm in a checkout line, at a supermarket, if I'm driving a car, wherever you see me, I want you to find me in Christ. But then he gives a condition, not having my own righteousness. Not having. Which is out of the law. That means it's produced by self-effort. By your effort 
to fulfill a standard that you have internalized, that you are trying so hard to match. He said, not having my own righteousness. Well, let me assure you, this Pharisee of Pharisees, who thought righteously he could murder the believers, he was a constitution of his own righteousness. But he learned, and this is for living Christ, experiencing Christ, not for justification before God. I must not have my own righteousness. Now I pause here. You consider the book of Job in the light of this. Job was a godly man, a man of integrity, the epitome of self-made righteousness. At one point, he was saying, so to speak to God, I'll see you in court. I will argue my case before you. I am right. I am righteous. I'm a man of integrity. And who could out-argue him? Not his three unvital companions, in that unvital group of four, he answered every argument. And they said they ceased answering Job because he was right in his own eyes. The matter of this man being unable to express God, but only his self-made righteousness, was so significant and the experiences required to deal with it are so drastic that God himself could not do this as God. There is only one being that could be used by God to do this demolition work, and that was Satan. That was Satan. So God wouldn't come directly and do that to one of his own. But it has to be done. Otherwise, there'll be no corporate expression. There'll be no bride. There'll be no wedding garment. There'll just be all these redeemed but self-righteous people populating the earth. So God, in his incredible wisdom and sovereignty, Arranged a situation in conversation. He said, Satan, what have you been doing? He said, I'm roaming around, checking on things. Well, have you considered my servant Job? God drew attention to him. He said, there's none like him on the earth. He's the most righteous person on the earth. And, and Satan said, yeah, why? Why? He's that way because he gets things. He gets things from you. If he didn't get the things, he'll curse you. So we know what happened. We don't have to repeat the story. Then at the end, God himself appears to Job, never answers any of his questions, never presents a counter-argument to Job he just reveals himself. 
Then Job declares, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I knew all about you. I believed what I learned about you. And I prayed and I was pious. Now my eye sees you. I see you. Therefore, I abhor myself. Now I see myself. Now I agree with you why this self had to be diminished, why you had to reduce me to nothing, yet to maintain my existence so you could reconstitute me. We're using the New Testament language. Then that was the great turning point when Job's self-made righteousness was consumed. And now there's an end. No matter how severe the trials are, once God reaches his end, everything changes. But it's really helpful on our part to obey Peter's word when we sense, when we sense the hand of God's government on us. Peter says, be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Be humbled. Lord, I just don't resist you. I humble myself before you. Then it says, you will be exalted in due time. So Paul knew Job. And Paul knew from his experience, everything he had that was the best of his culture, he said, I count as loss, phase one. I suffer the loss, phase two. I count it as trash, phase three. You consider how many of us can say that of our culture, of our fine culture that permeates our being and that is our actual expression. Maybe not yet, depending on where we are in the process. Eventually, Christ will truly be our constituent, our life, our element, all of our virtues, and all that we had attained. The best will be considered dung. And Paul could say, I want to be found in him, and I realize the condition is not having my own righteousness. But that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is out of God and based on faith. Okay. The wedding garment in Revelation 19 is called righteousnesses. Righteousnesses. Very unusual term. What are the righteousnesses that make up the wedding garment? Well, we're talking about now the preparing in our own being of this second garment. Every time we walk according to the mingled spirit, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 4. Whatever we do by taking Christ as our life and our person becomes a stitch. Every act of practical service, those taking care of the children, 
that will not be forgotten by God. If the children aren't taken care of, how can as many meet? Every pure action of gospel preaching, shepherding, functioning, serving, this is an instance of living out Christ and expressing him through your soul. You're not aware of it. That's why it's called righteousnesses. Every stitch is a righteousness. You're not conscious of it. But eventually what you see, what you can observe in someone who is preparing the wedding garment, you see a change in what they express. You can't deny it. You knew this person X number of years ago. You knew he was a dear brother, but mainly was, was expressed his strong character. Now you just sense a different person is expressed. He's not aware of it because he's not doing it self-consciously. There's no expression of culture, of class, of any divisive human element. That is the wedding garment, fine linen, the finest humanity. Very detailed. It's bright. It's glistening. It's bright. This bride will be mature. She will be corporate. She will be beautiful. And she will be bright and clean. And her expression will be the very expression of the bridegroom, whom she has loved with her whole being. Okay, now two applications of this. And for the second one, we'll, we'll all need mercy. I'll need mercy to speak it, and you'll need mercy to hear it. Paul was a Jew, proud of it. From Tarsus, proud of it. He said, no mean city. He was a Roman by birth. How that happened, we don't know. Highly cultured, probably was a genius, well-educated, surpassed all of his peers in pursuing the things of religion. Then he was completely revolutionized. And this is what he could say, for the sake of the gospel, I become all things to all men. God shows this Jew and made him an apostle, not to Jews, but to Gentiles. In order for him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he had to cease being a Jew in his culture, in his constitution, in his expression. Of course, you can't deny his ethnicity physically. But all of these people would sense this is not a typical Jew. We know he's a Jew, but he's another kind of being, another species. That is because when he allowed Christ to live in him, <clears throat> the Christ who lives in him and in us is a Christ who knows how to be 
with every kind of person, who loves every kind of person, who has no respecter of persons, of race, of culture, of social class, of educational level, of personality type, of disposition. He just loves human beings. He knows how to be with every one of them. And now this Christ is living in Paul and is being expressed through Paul. So when Paul's among Romans, he can be that. When he's among others, he can be that. Not in a political way, but by not living and expressing himself, but living and expressing Christ. Okay, that's Paul. Now, I will tell again a brotherly story many of you have heard, but I just like to tell it afresh every time. I love it. It means a lot to me. It happened a long time ago in ancient history, in 1973. Some of you had not begun to exist yet. And there's a conference in Akron, Ohio, and after one of the meetings in the evening, a number of brothers and their wives were invited to the home of a brother and his wife for informal fellowship, and Brother Lee was there. And I'm sitting at a 90-degree angle. He's here, and I'm here. And there are some other saints around, and there is a very expressive sister over here. And she said, Brother Lee, you're eating cheese. He said, this is the best cracker, Ritz crackers. Brother Lee endorsed, okay? I, I don't know if they're organic or not or whatever. And so he's eating cheese on Ritz crackers. My childhood delight. And the sister said, in an endearing way, Brother Lee, you're eating cheese. I thought Chinese people didn't like cheese. Oh, I can close my eyes. I can still see his smile. The smile, not only on his lips, but in his eyes, the twinkle in his eye. And he said, Sister, I'm not Chinese. <laughs> of course, physically he was. Ethnically he was. But why could the Lord, through him, gain so many hundreds of typical Americans. It's because he came expressing Christ, not his culture. He paid the price to speak in English with an accent. So he was able to draw to Christ and to the word diverse saints from all over the country. We moved to L.A. to be there. That's Brother Lee. Now, we go to Europe. Now, we are solidified in the U.S. Okay, get ready. Yes, yes, in certain respects, there's an increase, but only of your type. Only of your type, that's all. If you're Chinese, you will just multiply Chinese, even though there are so many other people in the community, all of whom should be reached. How much room is there? 
it doesn't matter. This applies to any of us. We go to Europe. Europe does not need Americans there. Europe does not need Chinese there from Taiwan. None of us can change our physical characteristics. If we're to gain Germans, if we're to gain refugees, we have to come there expressing something other than our culture and our natural constitution and our background. We want to be there with a garment that expresses Christ. And then we will be able to relate to any kind of person, no matter how great is the diversity between us and them. So that I would have no problem as an older, obviously Caucasian male, relating in genuineness and love to a young, strong African-American man of 21. Because he will know, he can read my heart, and he will know, I open my heart to you. There's nothing but unbiased love for you all. So we need this. Christ lived out as our expression. Not only for the major goal to be admissible to the marriage dinner of the Lamb, but just for our testimony. That we can communicate with any person and express Christ to any person and bring any kind of person to the Lord. And in fact, our heart is to bring every kind of person to the Lord so that our local church is a testimony of the believers in this locality, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to learn of Paul. We need to learn of brotherly. If we are to do this, we need a deeper work in our being, which is part of the stitching of the wedding garment. All of us, we're all the same. We were constituted. The culture is wrought into our mind. It's in our blood. It affects our values. It inclines us to certain people, all kinds of things. But when we allow the Christ who's in our spirit to break through everything that's not Christ in our soul, our culture, our self-righteousness, our self-expression, our natural disposition, our temperament, whatever it is, we tell the Lord, I mean business with you. I want to mature, I want to be built up, and Lord, now I see I need a wedding garment. I need a garment with thousands and tens of thousands of stitches of righteousnesses until my whole soul only expresses you. I'm still physically the same person. That's according to God's creation. But the expression is not the self with its righteousness. It's not the self with its culture. It's not the self with its opinions. It's not the self with its standards and criticisms and biases and prejudices. It's not the self at all. It's another person. Because eventually, even toward the very end, this bride is so one with Christ as the Spirit 
the spirit and the bride will say, Come. And the spirit and the bride, even then, will call out to anyone still on the earth who's thirsty, wherever you are. Even I'm about to enter into the wedding feast. But still I have a heart for you. It's not too late. Come and drink the living water. This is the bride expressing the evangelistic heart of her bridegroom. His love for all human beings. Well, this is a crucial matter. When my daughter got married, a lot of preparation took place. But on the wedding day, everything was about hair and wedding dress. Okay? Hair and wedding dress. Well, I don't have any word here about hair, but the word itself draws attention to the wedding garment. So please, my brothers and sisters, if you're new to this kind of teaching, don't be robbed by the inaccurate teaching that as long as you have Christ as your righteousness, according to be acceptable to God the Father, you're okay. You're okay to have fellowship with God. You are not okay to be part of the bride and at the wedding feast. So we have to know the truth. And then, really, the response is simple. Don't, don't promise that you will live out Christ from now on. Don't do that. Just say, Lord, I love you. I open to you. I give you the permission to work in me to produce the wedding garment. When I meet you, I want to be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. I don't want to be put to shame. I don't want to be removed from the wedding feast because you see me unclothed. You see me expressing the self the same as an unbeliever expresses the self, even though I'm regenerated. And therefore, I have to be on the periphery of this and spend a thousand years becoming what I could have become in my lifetime. And what is burning in my heart to the point that it's almost unbearable and almost unutterable is not a burden for myself personally. It's for all the dear saints in the Lord's recovery that we would allow the Lord to move in us, that we would just present ourselves to Him that in every aspect we could little by little, day by day, advance. Our love will intensify. We will grow in life. We will be built up. We will have the wedding garment. And we'll see, we'll be beautified. Now I can read through the outline in less than 20 minutes to solidify some of these points. And then you will have at least 25 minutes to complete the message. I mean this. When saints stand up one by one and affirm the message, then the body has spoken. Then it's not just one servant speaking. It's the body echoing, the body confirming. So let's, I read through to this outline to you now. The righteousness of the bride. Christ is the righteousness 
by which we have been justified by God, so that we may be reborn in our spirit to receive the divine life. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Of him of God you are in Christ Jesus, who is righteousness to us. So we all have this. In Romans 8.10, our spirit is life because of righteousness. Our objective righteousness is the one in whom we are justified by God. Okay? There are not 24 chapters in the book of Romans. There should be a 3 and a colon in front of 24. Um, fault is altogether mine. And these verses speak clearly about how we're justified by God. That's what Martin Luther discovered. We thank him for that. But I'm sure glad I'm not living in 1517. Bill, aren't we glad we're going to Germany in 2017 for the completion of what he started? As our subjective righteousness, this means inward and experiential, okay? Christ is the one dwelling in us to live for us a life that can be justified by God and that is always acceptable to God. So now we have Christ in us, dwelling in us. We let him live. Then when he lives for us a life that can be justified by God, and that is always acceptable to God, he becomes our subjective righteousness. This is the wedding gun. So I'm driving, and then someone cuts in front of me, making me a tailgater. I can have one of two reactions. I can remain a tailgater and say, too bad, buddy, you asked for it. I'm a tough guy. I'm not, I'm not backing down for anybody. So, I'm expressing myself, but if I allow Christ to live, I know what he's going to do. He's going to say, gently tap the brake, give yourself distance, let him go, forget about it. Stop looking around for a police car, hoping you will arrest him. See, that, 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 that's your righteousness. You want him to be apprehended immediately. And so this happens as quick as lightning, right? We've got so much of this stuff in us, it just pops out immediately. I mean, we're in the spirit singing, and this happens, and zoom, here it comes. Okay, that shows it's still there, but we can recognize it. I know what this is. This is myself being very righteous in condemning this other driver. And so... I don't want to lose the opportunity to get a stitch. Or another driving illustration. I'm in the left turn lane that will have a green arrow. And I'm the ninth car in line. I'm familiar with how long that arrow is usually on. If the cars in front of me have decent reflexes and they are concentrating. So I'm there in ninth position, and I am urging them on and expressing unhappiness 
when they are so slow. And so by the time I get there, it's not yellow, it's red. And I now have two minutes and 45 seconds to wait because of them. Well, do all things, in fact, work together for good? So this is the thing. Now, it may work together for good if I, right there, don't stay in the feeling produced by the self-righteous reaction, but instead I do something else. I don't want to sound hyper-spiritual. I just said, Lord, thank you. I have two minutes and 45 seconds to enjoy you. I can pray a little bit. I can sing a little bit. I can pray for saints a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for this arrangement. But when we all can do this, we're probably on the verge of rapture. <laughs> okay. Okay, B says, if we are to be found in Christ, we're drawing on Paul now, we must fulfill the condition of not having our own righteousness, but instead of having a righteousness which is not our own. That means it's not from the self. Okay? A righteousness which is through the faith of Christ is not even our own faith. We need Christ to be our faith. The righteousness which is of God, it comes out from God, and it's based on faith. Okay, faith means this. I can't do it. I can't be it. I can't make it, and I can't take it, but Christ can. See, that's faith. Faith is versus all that you are able to do without God. And so faith is Christ rising up in you to enable you to believe and to apply what God can do that you can't do. The righteousness in Philippians 3.9 signifies a daily living which is right with God and man. This righteousness is of God and actually is God himself. So the wedding garment is the expression of God in Christ as our righteousness. It's significant that in 2 Corinthians, which is on the New Covenant ministry and the ministries, Paul speaks of the ministry of the Spirit and of the ministry of righteousness. So we need both. We need to receive both. We need to participate in both. We receive the ministry of the Spirit that imparts Christ as the Spirit as life into us as our supply. But we also need to receive the ministry of righteousness, a ministry that communicates to us the minister's actual experience of the subjective Christ. This Christ is ministered to us with the faith that this can become our reality. We're all from the same source. The Lord can break through this brother's cell. He can break through mine. Okay? If he can get through stall of Tarsus, he can get through any one of us. We're even mediocre sinners compared to him. 
When was the last time you went out murdering saints? Probably been a long time, right? He probably never barged into a saint's home, broke up a home meeting, and dragged everybody to the police station. How long has it been since you did that? Okay, Never. So God took the worst and made him a pattern. And so he learned not having, not having. Oh, I'll tell you, it's such a relief to not have, to not have, to not be trying, to not be praying things like this, Lord, forgive me this, please. If you forgive me, I'll never do it again. That's self-trust. It's more honest to say, please forgive me. I can't promise that I won't do this again. I can only be saved from this by you living in me. K2, the living, which is right with both God and man, must be God as our expression in our daily life. So the more God in Christ is expressed in our daily life, the more the wedding garment is being prepared. You might have heard me say, I just draw upon history a little, although I'm, I'm not living in the past. I'm living in a happy present and looking into a glorious future. But I remember decades ago asking my wife, who's with the Lord at that time, on a scale of one to ten, how much do I live Christ at home? Some of you heard this. That Again, I'm fond of repeating this for others. I was thinking maybe mid-range, about five. And she said, uh, minus five. <laughs> so I had um, a self-righteous reaction to that. <clears throat> so now I have for the married brothers a bit of advice. Either start living Christ or stop asking such questions. <laughs> Because the wives always know, but eventually, they should be the first beneficiary of Christ expressed through us, not the last. They should be the first. In our daily living, our own righteousness is the expression of ourselves, the expression of I. I. Your righteousness equals I. The righteousness of God is God lived out of us. <clears throat> it is God becoming our living and expression. That's the wedding garment. You see the difference between the two. You have the first to be right with God. Now you need the second to be ready for the wedding feast. Christ lived out of the saints as their subjective righteousness. As their subjective righteousness becomes their wedding garment. So it's Christ lived out of us that becomes the wedding garment. So we need we prepare the wedding garment by learning what it is to live Christ. So the Lord will train you inwardly to know the difference between you and Christ and between good and God. And you will go through a process of sustaining the loss of a vowel. Okay? From good to God involves the loss of a vowel. So instead of trying to be good, your aspiration is to be the practical expression of God in Christ. But you're not aware of it. You're not trying to do it. You're just living and walking according to the mingled spirit. You're letting Christ make his home in you. You're learning to, 
know what the self is and you can deny it. And now you have Christ becoming the wedding garment. So that person in Matthew 22 was saved. Didn't live Christ. Thought, I'm saved. Everything's mine. I'll escape the tribulation. I'll be in the kingdom. I'll get all the rewards. I'll be in the glorious eternity. Well, it's not so simple. The wedding feast is a reward. The kingdom is a reward for those who follow the Lord's way to let Christ live in them. The righteousness we receive for our salvation is objective and enables us to meet the requirements of the righteous God. Whereas the righteousness says of the overcoming saints are subjective and enable them to meet the requirements of the overcoming Christ. And his requirements are that his counterpart match him. Your stature, you're full grown, you're mature. You're built up and now you are clothed with the wedding garment that is actually the expression of me living in you. And it was your love for me that motivated you, that opened you to those experiences which will eventually divest you of your self-righteousness completely. Most of the experiences I had along this line I should not talk about. They were costly. But I worship the Lord and thank the Lord for every single one. For not letting me go. For not letting me remain. For honoring my giving myself to Him. Don't let me stay as I am. Work this out in me. My part is to love you, to open to you, to receive your dispensing, to learn to deny the self and exercise the spirit. Surely the Lord delights in, pre in preparing his bride. He's doing his work. She is responding by making herself ready. To the wedding garment in Matthew 22, 11 through 13, signifies the Christ whom we live out and who is expressed to us in our daily living as our surpassing righteousness. So I hope this is clear. I had this sense the burden is mainly released. So it got into the body. The wedding garment is the Christ whom we live out and who is expressed to us in our daily living. That's the wedding garment. So, okay. Let us, let the past be the past. Let us believe, one, number one, the Lord is for us right now. For us, I wouldn't be here. Okay? And he has measured out enough time for us. So wherever we are, let's just come to him wherever we are, and according to as much as we understand and say, Lord, live in me to produce in me the wedding garment. Lord, please give me the experiences I need to have you as my subjective righteousness, my surpassing righteousness. 
And then uh, now a little section on beauty. It's not a secondary matter, but the burden is not as heavy, and I think it's a little bit easier for us to appreciate. As the bride, the church needs beauty. The beauty in Ephesians 5 is for the presentation of the bride. So I repeat Song of Songs 4 7. The Lord will say this You are altogether beautiful, my love. There's no blemish in you. So according to Ephesians 5, the washing of the water in the Word removes any defect, any scar from wounds you sustain in the course of your life. All of us are scarred from the time we were little in all kinds of situations. And wrinkles, oldness, and just defects, blemishes. Well, the Lord is going to wash away every such thing and positively beautify us with himself because he does want a beautiful bride. I know brothers hope to have a beautiful bride and I would not discourage that. But I do hope that um, you can stand in front of a full-length mirror and look at yourself and then be a little realistic about what you're asking for, okay? You're not exactly Mr. Universe, you know. <laughs> but but I, I appreciate that, that you want... You, know, you should be attracted to each other, okay? If there's no attraction, come on. Don't try to coat it over with spirituality. There's got to be real attraction there. And so... The bride is going to be beautiful. For presentation, oh, when the presentation comes, glorious church, beautiful church. Maybe he'll just beckon to the enemy, just be on the fringe. Look at her. This is the one you satanified. This is the one you ruined. This is the one you made a flesh of sin. Look at her now. Isn't she beautiful? Mature? Built up? Without blemish? I examine her whole being. There's no defect in her. You, you don't have a word to say. But I have a word to say. Dear, my counterpart, I give to you the authority. Deal with this enemy. You deal with him. So Ephesians 5, 27 reveals the beauty of the bride saying that Christ will present the church to himself glorious. You're going to be glorious. All you brothers in the front row, you're going to be glorious. All of us not having spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she would be holy and without blemish. The beauty of the bride comes from the Christ who is wrought into the church and who is then expressed through the church. Our only beauty is the shining out of Christ from within us. What I'm going to say now, I say in holiness and in purity because I'm saying this on behalf of sisters. 
Every sister who shines forth Christ is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. This is the most beautiful and beautifying thing. It's Christ shining out of us, our only beauty. That's the only beauty that lasts. Some of you that are young, you might have heard of a woman named Elizabeth Taylor, Hilton, Wilding, Todd, Fisher, Burton, somebody else. At her prime, she truly was the most beautiful woman on the earth. But prime doesn't last. <clears throat> Human beauty fades, but the beauty of the bride will be eternal. We will never get old. We'll be married... A a trillion billion years, everything will be fresh, everything will be new, we'll never get old, nothing will be stale, there'll be no replays, nothing, everything will be fresh, living water will be gushing out of the redeeming God, fresh as ever. We'll say, wow, we never experienced this before. Wow, he kissed me, I've never been kissed like this before. Lord, I never loved you this way before. And he says, you're more beautiful than ever. This is our destiny. What Christ appreciates in us is the expression of himself. So, we have a verse that's for all of us. We all, with unveiled face, beholding and reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord's Spirit. So we're all in the process. Some have a little glory because they're just starting. Others have a lot of glory because they've been pursuing a long time. But we are all going on from glory to glory. Let me tell you, I was here six months ago. Okay? There's more glory tonight than there was six months ago. So whatever you're doing, just keep doing it as part of the preparation of the bride. So we do have about 25 minutes. If we can have a good number, just stand up. Again, 45 seconds to a minute. And unless you really have a special anointing, and if you do, we'll recognize it. Unless you do, and you hear the sound of the piano, complete your sentence and stop. Okay? But we need many to speak, sisters and brothers of all ages. Please confirm the word.